times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. You know, I've been fascinated by the art of documenting things lately. There are so many ways to record information. Oral histories, written histories, visual histories. Or spreadsheets, numbers, graphs, statistics. You've got longhand, shorthand, pictures worth a thousand words, or words that describe a thousand pictures. Things are recorded in analog or digital. Records can be made to demonstrate sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. Some forms of documenting focus on a single approach, and others offer multi-sensory experiences. Now, you may think that this is going somewhere that relates to my former storage unit and all the documentation contained within. However, I'll have to be honest with you, this preamble is all just some fancy justification for saying, I've been indulging in a bunch of documentaries lately. I don't know why, but you can present me with a well-directed, well-written documentary about nearly any subject, and I'll be engrossed in minutes. Let's take a look at some of the things I've learned about in April, shall we? I've learned about the fires of St. Anthony, St. Elmo, neither of which are actually fires. I've learned about the beans of St. Ignatius, which aren't actually beans. A tunnel where people pay to inhale radioactive gas. Allegations of sinister misconduct in the field of cozy, wholesome indie games. I've learned about cursed films, then more cursed films. I've learned about various CIA human experimentation programs. And, for reasons I cannot explain, I've learned more about the British rave scene in the 90s than I ever thought possible. Look, the point is, documentaries can be powerful things. They're more than just recounting a true story, more than reading a Wikipedia page. They're a hugely important part of our cultural landscape, and with more and more content filling up streaming services and more and more YouTubers growing large enough to have the required budget to make truly engrossing investigative works, the art of documentary is only going to improve. Hmm, someone should make a documentary about that. Yes, I realize that all of this sounds like I'm leading somewhere that I'm about to announce that our new sponsor is a production company known for this kind of content, but no, I just wanted to indulge in discussing something I love. There's no ulterior motive, no foreshadowing. I, I've never even heard of five years later pictures. Uh, 
So let's just get on with our fictional podcast, shall we? In our first tale, we join Charlie, a man who's enjoying a nice night out with his family. What could be better, spending time with your loved ones, tucked up safe, but still watching a series of thrilling events play out on the screen? But in this tale, shared with us by author Michael S. Walker, the theater in Charlie's mind seems to be experiencing some technical difficulties. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Jeff Clement, Nicole Goodnight, Tanya Milosevic, Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, and Mary Murphy. So grab your popcorn and enjoy the show until the credits roll on The Drive-In Movie. They started the feature, and as usual, it was still not dark enough to quite make out the images on the massive drive-in screen. Charlie sat in the back seat of his family's Ford sedan with his sister Sally and stared past his father's head at the amorphous figures on the screen. From a silver speaker hooked precariously to the driver's side window, lines of dialogue from the feature sputtered and crackled sounding like they were coming from the bottom of a coffee can or something. Sally sat far, far away from him, not staring at the screen at all. She was fiddling with the arms of some plastic baby doll she had cradled in her own arms. The doll was wrapped up tight in a pink wool blanket. Sally was also singing along with their mother, who sat in the front seat, her eyes ostensibly focused on the blurry feature. The song was an old, old favorite, Charlie had not heard that song since. Wait a minute. What day is it? What year is it now? Charlie only knew that it was summer, and the whole family was at the drive-in movies once again, seeing a new double feature. The fact filled Charlie with warmth, and something else. A feeling as amorphous as the moving blobs on the giant tiled screen. Not... A very good feeling, perhaps. His mother and sister sang together in identical, almost tuneless voices. I know an old lady that swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. His father murmured good-naturedly from behind the wheel. Hey, I paid to see a movie, not listen to a concert. Come on, stow it, please. But they, as if to tease him, went on singing. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. Charlie stared at the back of his father's skull in growing fascination. Shouldn't there be something? A bald spot, perhaps? Like some pink pancake stretching down almost to the nape of his neck? Why was that singular image fixed in Charlie's mind? But no, it wasn't so. His father's hair covered all of his head in massive, dark, greasy curls. It was the hair of a young man in his thirties. Why was that strange? As Charlie struggled with this, lines of dialogue from the movie leached through to his ears. 
His mother and his sister gave up the old lady Diddy somewhere around I know an old lady who swallowed a dog to concentrate on the feature as well. On the screen, a thin, nervous-looking man in a silver spacesuit and helmet was talking into a long microphone attached to some elaborate control panel or computer. To the left of this ungainly figure, a small crowd of school-aged children looked on in rapt fascination. The thin, skittish man in the suit chirped into the microphone. We are starting our retro rocket countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, firing retro rockets. He then pressed hard at a button on the bulky control panel. We will be touching down in 20 minutes. One of the children, a little girl with cute brown pigtails, now broke free from the group and sidled up to the man. I have to go to the bathroom. We have just touched down. In the front seat, his parents laughed heartily. His sister joined in a split second later as not to be left out. His father munched popcorn out of a greasy bag between his legs. Oh, that Don Knotts. Don Knotts? Wait a minute. What was this movie? Hadn't Charlie just seen it a couple of months ago on TV, passing the time at the hospital? Why the hospital? He couldn't remember. Again, it was part of that amorphous feeling that he still could not define. Mom, how old is this movie? Charlie was surprised, not surprised, at the sound of his own voice. It seemed a couple of octaves higher than expected. Curiouser and curiouser. His mother turned to stare at him from the front. For a second, only the briefest of seconds, her face seemed gray and emaciated, like some antiquated death mask. And then that image dissipated, and there was his young mother, her hazel eyes twinkling in the growing darkness, smiling at him. What you mean, Charlie? You know this movie, The Reluctant Astronaut. You begged and begged me to take you to see it when it first came out when it was at the Midland Theater a few months ago. The Midland Theater? The Midland Theater? Hadn't that old barn burnt down? Like in... Again. Charlie could not remember, and it was maddening. His mother returned to enjoying the movie. She slid across the front seat, close to Charlie's father, and rested her small head cozily on his shoulder. His father, in turn, pulled her in even closer with one strong hirsute arm. That can't be right. But still, it was nice, very nice to see that. Despite all these pieces in his head that did not fit together, despite all uncertainty, his inability to remember, nice to see his parents together again. Charlie looked out the windshield now, past his cuddled parents. It was growing darker and darker by the minute. The colossal characters on the drive-in screen stood out in sharp relief, as if they were now being projected in the dark of some regular theater. The Midland, perhaps. But the Midland had burnt down in... Charlie thought it might come to him, 
as it grew even darker. He now glanced out his side window at the vast gravel lot house of the drive-in theater. There were other cars out there, of course, in this starless night, all pointed toward the screen wall, like chrome and metal worshippers in some kind of outdoor church. By the moving, flickering light issuing from the screen, Charlie could see these other vehicles fairly well, but there was something off about the cars out there, too. Something incongruous to his thinking. They all seemed too bulky to be real, or tapered and flattened out like race cars. Some of them had tail fins. And then Charlie noticed an even stranger particular. All of the cars that he noticed seemed to be sporting tiny little flags. Without exception, tiny purple flags hung from the hood antennas of every car he looked at. And all of the flags were emblazoned with white crosses. Something was coming to him now, becoming clearer in his mind. As the feature ran on and on in hilarity, and the darkness settled around them, as his parents spooned in the front seat, that amorphous something was... Charlie stared over at his sister. She apparently had lost interest in the movie and had gone back to attending to her baby doll. She was singing to it now, as she fussed and tightened the pink blanket around its small body. More of that old song. I know an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. Of course. Of course. How old was his sister? Very young. Three? Four? He wasn't sure. And that doll? It seemed to stir up now unpleasant associations for Charlie. Pain out of nowhere. A black cloud of grief. A strange word now bubbled up in his mind. Preclampsia. His sister. But there was his sister. Three or four. Looking down on her child with untempered devotion and love. She caught Charlie looking at her. She leaned over and punched him hard in the arm. And that was all right. It was all part of that lovely warmth. Daddy, Charlie is staring at me. This time, his father turned around to look at him. And for a second, just as it had been with his mother, there was some kind of ghostly image. Some quick superimposition. It looked as if for a brief second, as if half of his father's face were gone. But there he was again, smiling, loving, only mock scolding. Charlie, do I need to turn this car around now and drive us all home? Everyone <laughs> laughed at the joke, Charlie included. That warm feeling was there despite the darkness, despite the ghosts. The ghosts that were coming more and more into focus as the reels of the reluctant astronaut played out on a vast screen. A screen that Charlie knew should be full of gaps and holes now. A screen that should exist as a rusty artifact in a lot overcome by weeds. A screen where no double feature had played for years and years. If this was eternity, it would be 
All right. The dialogue of the movie now seemed to cut out as Charlie thought this one thought. And from the tiny sliver speaker on the driver's side window, a sound like machines. A mechanical hissing, breathing began. Over and over as his parents and sister laughed. And then that sound stopped too. Undertaking dangerous feats can be daunting, but for some, it's a way of life. Spelunking in a huge cave system, exploring a vast desert, or, in this case, climbing a difficult mountain. But in this tale, shared with us by author Wiley, we're talking about a peak that almost none have managed to ascend and live to tell the tale. I perform this tale alongside Jessica McAvoy, So I think we'll be able to make the journey, even if the path ahead is littered with bodies. Why? Well, you'll find out if you go. God, I love the mountains. The exquisite tension of navigating fickle terrain, the elation of absolute solitude at 28,000 feet. Never mind that Holly begged me not to go. Never mind the wine glass she flung at me as I left, my pack slung over one shoulder as shards of crystal rained down on me. When I get back, we'll make up, as we always do. When I get back. But I'm here now. The ascent... The thin air, the retina-blasting glare of sunlight on virgin snow, the wind which cuts at exposed skin like a knife, commands my attention. In the distance, the serrated peaks of neighboring mountains stab up from a mantle of clouds. By now, I'm well above base camp at an elevation of 25,000 feet, navigating an icefall pitted with crevasses, some of them spanned by little more than a rickety aluminum ladder lashed to poles with climbing rope. It's dangerous, soul-pulverizing work. I love every second of it. Just past the icefall, at the base of a steep couloir, I pass a familiar, if morbid, landmark. Here lies my old friend Romeo, so named for his distinctive configuration in death. Lips upturned in a beatific smile, arms outstretched in a permanent pantomime of a lover's embrace. His hand is balled in a fist that might have gripped a snapped rope, or an ice axe that failed to arrest him mid-fall, just seconds before presumably hurling down the 3,000-foot chute to his death. Now blanketed in fresh snowfall, he serves as a grim reminder of the perils of the mountain and those foolhardy enough to climb it. There are other landmarks. Deserted campsites, abandoned climbing gear... And, of course, the dozens of ill-fortuned climbers permanently arrested in their bid for the summit. 
I recognized the Snow Queen nestled in her throne of ice, her torso fused to the Serac by years of accumulated ice and snow. She looks as fresh as the day she died, skin white as Arctic moonlight, her lips fish belly gray. In the frozen wasteland above 20,000 feet, nothing rots. She'll stay there until a loved one reclaims her, or the mountain does, whichever comes first. There's another climber here. She pulls out a camera and snaps a morbid memento mori on her own journey to the summit. A strange custom, collecting pictures of the dead, and one I've always found a little distasteful. I give the climber a stiff nod. I must have done a poor job of hiding my disapproval, because she doesn't nod back. As she fades into the spin drift behind me, she's still staring at the corpse, mouth half open, her camera hanging forgotten from her hand. I pass several more climbers on the way up the couloir, men and women distinguished only by the color of their gear. There are electric blue jackets and hot pink trekking poles, neon bright, not out of ostentation, but to simplify the corpse hunt if things go sour. We acknowledge each other with grim nods, or not at all. Some of them, I think, will make it. They are the ones possessed, who climb the mountain like the devils on their tail. But more often, I pass by climbers struggling through the snow. I learn that one of them, a man in a distinctive camo print parka, has left his ailing partner at base camp to make a solo bid himself. I wish him luck, knowing he'll need it. When I reach Camp 3, just shy of 26,000 feet, I check my watch. At this altitude, time starts to flex, expanding and contracting like the lungs of a giant. Time moves glacially, hours passing in the space of a minute. You learn to measure time by counting your breaths, sometimes as many as 15 for every step in the oxygen-starved atmosphere. There are a few tents scattered across the broad, flat step that is Camp 3. Their occupants busy themselves prepping for the next leg of the ascent, their faces impenetrable behind wraparound shades and layers of insulating down. I wave, but they're too exhausted to wave back. I bite back a grin. Most climbers stop to pitch a tent at Camp 3. If not out of sheer exhaustion, then to give their bodies time to recover from the effects of altitude sickness. But I feel strong, even without bottled oxygen. My legs piston up the slope, leaving the climbers in a plume of fresh powder. The next part is the hardest. A 200-foot vertical jumar. The sheer cliff pockmarked here and there with cams and ice screws. I rope in. Halfway up the route, I find a new addition to the Legion of the Dead. A climber hangs upside down, his ankles tangled in his ropes, face coated in layers of delicate hoarfrost like some ghoulish Turkish pastry. He must have lost his grip and swung upside down. Then, too weak to lever himself upright, he must have hung there for hours, maybe days, until the elements finally did him in. He'd have cracked his head against the ice if he was lucky. But it's the familiar camo print parka that ices my blood. I have the nauseating sensation that I took a wrong turn somewhere. When had he passed me? How could he pass me, exhausted as he was? 
Was he so deranged by hypoxia that he didn't think to ask for help? Maybe he'd taken an inadvisable shortcut along the steeper eastern couloir, exhausting himself to the edge of death. I'm no closer to an explanation when I arrive at Camp 4. And here's another cause for concern. Because there shouldn't be a Camp 4. The human body can't sustain life upwards of 26,000 feet. Only a handful of people have survived a bivouac overnight. There's a reason they call it the Death Zone. But there are tents here. A few of them so old they put me in mind of World War II military tents. Flaps of oilcloth snap in the wind. I've half convinced myself they're abandoned, relics of some previous doomed expedition or maybe an improbable movie set. But then I see a face peer at me from between the folds of one of the tents. I call to them, but they ignore me. Knowing every second I linger jeopardizes my own success. I press on. A shelf of cloud is gathering at the peak, but I'm confident I can summit and turn back in the time it takes for the storm to break. In the death zone, timing is crucial. Bodily functions, one by one, begin to fail. Mucus leaks into the lungs and brain. The blood thickens to soup. The wind whips into a fever pitch, and cold begins its final foray into your bones. The body enters a liminal state, balanced on the razor-thin barrier between life and death. It's fucking exhilarating. Hallucinations are not at all uncommon in this state of diminished functioning, so I wasn't surprised to see other climbers alongside me, dressed as if they came from different eras. Indigenous guides in reindeer skins and yak fur caps. Millionaires in their latest REI tech. British generals in military garb shooting the breeze with the state-sponsored mountaineers from the Russian SFSR. Time converges, then scatters. Inhale. Exhale. The peak is within reach now. The wind buffets me on all sides. In my hypoxic fugue, it feels like I'm in the middle of a jostling crowd, elbows and knees jabbing into me, voices shrilly crying. Some voices rise to ascendancy over the others like a wail, indistinguishable from the skirling wind. I push it out of my mind in my madcap bid for the summit. Holly's parting words filter back to me as if from an unimaginable distance, close and far away, all at once. If you go, never come back. The clamorous wind abruptly stops swaddling me in silence so profound it leaves me stunned. How had I forgotten that? Holly and I aren't together anymore. Haven't been together for months. Years? Let's say months. I recall with piercing clarity the envelope of divorce papers waiting for me in my motel. 
chill settles in my bones. Exhaustion tugs at my feet like lead weights. I realize with some annoyance that I made a mistake that newbies will often make in their fever to reach the top, pushing myself hard and depleting my energy stores, leaving nothing behind for the descent. I consider turning back. No, I should turn back. But Holly isn't here to ground me. Not anymore. And the summit is so close. And then I'm at the top. A staggering sense of elation washes through me. It's a surreal feeling. Standing alone at the apex of the world. For me, the feeling has always resembled something like claustrophobia. Absurd, yes, yes, I know. But nothing reveals the smallness of the world like peering down upon it from 28,000 feet. Compelled by a whim, I search for a small flat stone and slip it into my palm. Go. Oh, I wish Holly were here to share this with me, like back in the old days when we'd summit the mountain together, before I felt myself torn between my love of climbing and my love of her. She never understood that vital calling, like a hook that's been caught between my breastbone, pulling me inexorably upwards. If you go. I pull a ratty pitcher from my pocket and hold it up to the sun. In it, Holly is a young woman with strawberry blonde hair, her cheekbones dusted with freckles. I squint at the photo, something in the trick of the light distorting her smile into a scowl. When had her hair gone dull and brassy, shot through with skeins of gray? In the irradiated light of the summit, the photograph has a strange lenticular quality. Gray, red, gray, red, like, like sunlight peekabooing through the clouds. Never come back. I slip the photograph into my pocket, and the air in front of me resolves itself into a shape. Just the breath needed to speak her name sucks critical oxygen from my lungs. But it's worth it just to see the smile that ghosts over her lips. Had she followed me up the mountain? I, I, I realize the implausibility of this scenario, except that my hypoxic brain is conjuring her phantom even as I take a shuddering step forward. I fall into her outstretched arms, burying my face in the crook of her shoulder. I inhale her scent, sweet cinnamon and birch, warm and comforting. I stay there a long time, relishing Holly's heartbeat against my breastbone, basking in our shared warmth. I stay there a very long time. I don't know how long it takes me to get back to base camp. There's a new group of climbers here, prepping their equipment for the long ascent. I remove my crampons, stowing them with the rest of my gear. Giddy with triumph, I wave to them. They squint into the snow, then turn to one another with a shrug and head back inside their tent. 
Holly's warning echoes in my head. The tinkle of shattered crystal as the wine glass explodes above my head. A rain of crystal. Or... or was it ice? I'm beginning to feel disoriented, frightened. It's time to leave. I've accomplished what I set out to do. I'll go back to my motel room, sign the papers, say goodbye to ten years of marriage scuttled at the base of this mountain. I turn my attention to the peak for one last goodbye. And all at once, an incredible idea hits me. Maybe. Maybe Holly wouldn't mind waiting another few days. Just long enough for me to reach the peak. Long enough for me to say hello to my old friend Romeo, his arms frozen in a pantomime of a loving embrace. It unsettles me to stare at him too long, though. I secure the crampons to my boots and begin my bid for the summit. God, I love the mountains. The exquisite tension of navigating fickle terrain, the elation of absolute solitude at 28,000 feet. Never mind that Holly begged me not to go. During World War II, young Richard is sent away from his home in London to the apparent safety of the Scottish countryside. But even away from the main action of the war, bombs still thunder across the highlands. And in this tale, shared with us by author Gustavo Bondoni, one of these explosions unearths something unexpected. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, Guy Woodward, Erica Sanderson, Ilana Charnel, Penny Scott Andrews, and Andy Cresswell. So remember the usual advice of don't go out on the moors, but maybe sometimes it's worth digging deeper when there's thunder in old Kilpatrick. The skies came alive with a drone like a disturbed beehive, and Richard glanced up at the heavens. But only for a moment. There were more pressing things occupying his attention on Earth. Wonderful things that he'd never imagined possible back in boring old London. Fluttering on the ground in front of him was a bird, red-headed and angry, dragging a broken wing through the heather. Richard wondered what to do with it. There was no question of just letting it be, not after he'd spent all afternoon trying to bring one down. But he was torn between the sheer delight of tormenting it, taking revenge on all of taunting, elusive bird kind, or of nursing it back to health and having it for a pet. These weighty meditations were the reason that old Tom managed to sneak up on him. I see you've got your first grouse, laddie. A grouse? He'd heard some of the men talking about grouses, and sometimes they even went out to hunt them. 
The guns they carried were so big that Richard had always imagined that a grouse would be something huge, with hide, tusks and a temper to match. The thing wriggling forlornly on the ground certainly didn't look the part. Old Tom nodded towards the bird. They're hard to bring down, especially with a sling. You've the makings of a hunter, boy. The groundskeeper's craggy face never showed any emotion, but his voice seemed to radiate approval. The stones won't save you if Hannah finds you here. The wireless says the sirens have gone over in Clyde Bank, and she's ordered everyone into the cellar. The sirens are going all the time. We're too far away for it to matter. Richard knew that old Tom wouldn't report his words, but there was always the chance that Hannah would appear from out of the underbrush. The plump, grandmotherly woman was lightning fast with a switch. And I'll tell her, I ran all the way back, but I was too far away. The old man pursed his lips to speak, but suddenly stopped and looked into the air. Richard realized that the drone had grown louder, but he still didn't worry. It was probably just an RAF defender reaching the scene of the bombing too late to be of any use. A rough, calloused hand pressed into Richard's shoulder. Get down, lad! Tom pushed him down into the heather right beside the struggling bird and lay on top of him. Or at least it felt that way to Richard. Before he'd finished falling, he felt the earth around him shake. Then he was deafened by a sound of thunder and thrown some meters clear. He hit the ground hard and didn't hear the second bomb. The pain in Richard's hand became more and more urgent, and he came back to his senses with a gasp. A voice shouting in a closed, unintelligible Scottish brogue sounded distantly through the ringing in his ears. He turned his head and saw old Tom brandishing a thick branch in one hand. The groundskeeper's other arm hung bloody and limp at his side. At first, Richard wondered whether the blast that had thrown them across the moor had also finally driven the old man insane. The servants muttered about Tom's lonely life and bleak disposition all the time, not caring that the young master might hear. Now, though, the man seemed to be incoherent, bracing for an attack. The doubts were short-lived. A lumbering form wearing rags and some rusted metallic fabric came into view. The strange figure uttered a low moan, a sound that, even through the buzzing in Richard's ears, felt like the lament of a lost soul. He paused in front of the groundskeeper and then lowered a shoulder and advanced. Tom made a valiant effort to stop him, advancing grimly and breaking the branch, a drying, firm weapon, over the other man's head. The blow was completely ignored, and the second man, moaning continuously, struck once with his hand and sent Tom head over heels to the ground. Then he waited as if to see what the groundskeeper would do next, until satisfied that his opponent was not going to move again. 
With slow, deliberate motions, the man turned to where Richard was lying. The boy felt the fear rushing into his gut and tried to stand, tried to run. But it was impossible. His balance abandoned him and he stumbled onto the floor, able only to lie and watch as the figure of Tom's assailant advanced. The other man bent and picked Richard up by the shirt. The scent coming off of him was of earth and mould. The man pulled him up to face him, and Richard nearly fainted when he saw the eyes. They were white, milky, the eyes of a blind man. The man's skin was grey, almost white, and there was an open cut running across the length of his forehead, but the open flap of skin showed no blood, just more white-grey. Richard opened his mouth, but the scream came through his deafened ears as a pitiful whine. The man held his gaze for just another second before dismissively tossing the boy to the ground. When Richard's head hit, the darkness descended once again. The next time Richard opened his eyes, he found himself in bed. He was in a wood-panelled room with sunlight streaming through a window. A glass of water sat in a tray beside the bed. So it was all a dream? He decided to go out to see the delights the Moors held in store for him. He never managed it. As he attempted to sit up, a strange bundle around his chest impeded his progress, and it was a good thing too. Pain shot up from his ribs, and he fell back to the bed with a gasp. Richard! What do you think you're doing, young man? Hannah entered the room, her dark blue uniform immediately filling it, leaving little room for anything else. Hannah was supposedly head of the household staff, not quite a housekeeper, not quite a member of the family, but in reality she ran the house with an iron fist, and anyone who wasn't an adult member of the gentry would do as she ordered, or feel the sharp sting of her tongue. Richard thought there must be a bit of bear in her makeup. Near broken in half by the bombs and trying to get out of bed without a buy your leave, I'll not have it. He nodded dumbly, as was his custom whenever she asked him a question, but the tactic, usually infallible, was wasted on her. Now, tell me how you're feeling. Those ribs all right? Doctor said you'd be feeling the break for a few weeks. No tree climbing for you, lad. Break? He was relieved to find that speech was possible and that the pain had subsided. Broke a rib. Maybe two. I'm surprised it wasn't more fool, lad. Playing out on the moors in the middle of a German attack. How many times have I told you to get inside when the alarms sound? The cellar is the only place to be in a raid. But do you listen? No. No one ever listens to me. That was so ridiculously untrue that Richard nearly interrupted her but caught himself in time. 
Even so, it was unlikely that Hannah would have paid him the least attention. She had a full head of steam. And that old man is the worst of the lot. Just because the master is fond of grouse hunting and he's the only one who can keep his grouse moors clear, he thinks he's above the law. Well, you see where it got him? She paused to give Richard a questioning glare, to which the boy could only give a confused look in response. It nearly cost him an arm, and it did cost him his sanity. Not that there was much of that to begin with. Do you know what he's been saying? This time she didn't stop to ask for Richard's opinion, she just went on. He's been saying there's a white loose on the moors. Oh, that's old Tom for you. He'd never be content to be bombed by the Germans. Oh no, he has to go and bring ghosts and ghouls into the story as well. Oh. Hannah sighed in disgust and left, muttering something about getting the young fool something to eat, if the old fool had left anything at all. Richard ignored her completely. He was thinking about a white. The next few days were torture. Even though he hardly felt any pain, Richard was forced to stay in bed under strict guard and the threat of lost privileges as life went on around him. That in itself would have been enough to make him chafe. Who knew how long the war would last, how long the German bombs in London would allow him to remain out here in the Scottish countryside. His freedom from the grey limitations of life as the son of a wealthy city merchant might come to an end at any time. But this was not the main reason for Richard's restlessness. There was a darkness in the house that made the weeks before, when German air raids were a daily occurrence, seem like a light-hearted time of happiness. Maids, whispering as they approached, would immediately fall silent when they entered his room to clean or to leave his meals on the bedside table. Even Hannah, forbidding as she was, seemed to be showing chinks in her armour. Once, during a particularly windy day, a sudden gust closed one of the room's shutters with a loud bang, causing Hannah to start and drop a tray complete with Richard's breakfast. The woman had tried to hide her fear under a veneer of anger, but her face had remained white as a sheet for the rest of the day, and she'd ordered all the shutters on the ground floor to be closed as soon as dusk began to fall. Frustration mounted as the days went by and no one gave him any indication of what was going on. Day after day he suffered until, one afternoon, bored of the illustrated books that had kept him sane to that point, Richard stole out of bed. He reasoned that, if discovered, he would simply say that he was on the way to the bathroom, his only permitted excursion, and hadn't told anyone in order to avoid being a nuisance. The door of his room was about halfway down the hall on the first floor of the house. Richard made his way silently down the corridor towards the two flights of stairs leading into the entrance hall. He stopped dead. Below him, two of the maids were in earnest conversation. They say the white's not been seen for two days. She was the scullery maid, married to a clerk in town, so she was the source of any and all information in the house. Must be hiding. No, they say whites don't know how to hide. They're just dead flesh, and they have to keep moving. 
they have unfinished business. That's why they can't really die. But this one was from years and years ago. How come it's just come out now? Old Tom says that they must have buried it under tons of stone, and that the bomb set it free. Pshaw, old Tom ain't right in the head since he lost his arm. Anyhow, if the white's gone, the army probably got it. No, you can't kill a white with guns. It can't rest until it does what it has to do. That's what I told Emma when she said that it had probably thrown itself into the sea. I told her that whites have to do what they have to do. It's silly to think they'd go throwing themselves into the sea. Why not? Must be an awful way to live, being a white. Richard knew these two would not give him any more useful information. They knew less about the monster than he did. Just from looking into its dead eyes for that single instant, he could have told them beyond any doubt that the white was still out there somewhere. The mere suggestion of its throwing itself into the sea was ridiculous. He moved back to his room undiscovered. It took the full force of the doctor's command, and Richard managed to overhear the phrase, I don't care if the armies of hell itself are out on those moors, the boy needs to be allowed to recover in the fresh air for Richard's personal Cerberus to allow him freedom. At first, the command was taken literally, with supervised strolls along the terrace being deemed sufficient contact with the elements to be going on with. But even Hannah quickly realized that this was impracticable. People busy making certain he wasn't being attacked by ancient monsters were often needed in the kitchen or elsewhere, and the fact that they avoided any mention of it was even worse. They pretended to be concerned that he might fall or that he would move in the wrong direction and hurt himself. Richard fantasized about asking the scullery maid that was with him that day what exactly she would do if the white attacked them. He kept silent, and on the third day they simply left him to his own devices. Richard knew that there was a fine line between freedom and obedience that had to be observed. If he disappeared into the moors for too long, Hannah would cause his freedom to end in a complete way. And besides, he still wasn't in any condition to be overly frolicsome. But there was one thing he had to do, despite the darkness of the day and the fog that hadn't quite burned away, even though it was nearly noon. The place where the German plane had dropped the bombs was about half a mile away, just beyond one of the small hills that dotted the estate. The white was sitting in the shadows of the crater, it looked up as he approached, and Richard was again surprised by the lack of life in its eyes. He knew what people were saying about it, knew that it was supposed to be the walking dead, supposed to be able to tear strong men apart without even making much of an effort. But he felt no fear. He'd moved on, and was no longer the shell-shocked bomb victim the White had encountered previously. Even injured, Richard knew he could run faster than it could stumble after him. They studied each other in silence for a moment. The white's dead eyes seemed to have grown glassier since they'd last met, but other than that, it didn't seem to be the worse for wear. 
It was still wearing the rust-colored shirt whose unused hood fell behind the creature's head. Now that Richard had time to observe more carefully, he saw that the shirt reached its knees and was held in place at the waist by a rotted belt which couldn't possibly hold out much longer. The cloth rags which it had been wearing over the shirt on their first encounter were gone. Somehow this creature, this dead man from another age, looked perfectly at home standing in a bomb crater in the gloom of the overcast moor. It looked natural, making Richard feel like he was the otherworldly intruder. Without warning, it emitted the moan again. It wasn't a loud sound, but it cut straight to the boy's soul, passing through his physical body as if it were made of spider silk. Richard nearly turned and ran, but held his position until the wailing stopped and they stood facing each other again, with Richard feeling just slightly wave-tossed. The white clearly didn't see him as a threat. Whether something had changed since their last encounter, or whether it simply remembered the ease with which it had handled him, Richard had no way of knowing. But the creature simply turned, without so much as a shrug, and began methodically lifting stones that it found in the scarred earth where the German bombs had fallen. There seemed to be no point to what it was doing. Every rock it took into its arms was then dropped back into a seemingly random place as it picked up another. It wasn't piling them up, nor was it organizing them in any way. It didn't even seem to know which ones it had already discarded. In the ten minutes that Richard watched it work, he saw the white pick up one particular stone no less than eight times before tossing it back to the ground. Richard took two steps forward, trying to get a closer look at what was happening, but suddenly he heard a familiar drone high in the skies. He didn't stop to think that it might just be an RAF patrol. He didn't stop to hear if the sirens were going. He just ran as quickly as his battered body could take him for the imaginary safety of the house. Richard only turned back once when the wailing of the white hit him from behind. He turned to see it waving its arms frantically at some unseen enemy from above, as if it were being attacked by bees. Then he turned back to the house and ran from the sound of the aeroplanes. The raids continued day and night for two days. This time, it was no incidental thing, bombers dropping a load or two on their way back to Germany. This time, the target was Clydebank, and Richard could hear the distant rumbling whenever he left the bunker. They were tense times, but all of them knew, at least deep within themselves, that the shelter would protect them. It might have been a false belief or even completely mistaken, but it kept them from going mad. And the thunder from the bombs never came too close again. On the third day, the bombing stopped, and thunder of a different kind, full of blowing gales and rattling windows, took over the land. Richard was confined to the house for yet another spell. By the time the storm blew over, 
he was nearly completely recovered and fit to burst from the combined effects of cabin fever and the secret he'd managed to keep to himself in the shelter. As soon as it dawned sunny, he was off into the moors. The white hadn't gone far. It was standing nearly in the same place as he had left it, almost as though it hadn't moved. But it was clear that it must have. The place where the bombs had fallen had been churned into a muddy mass of deep footprints, and the white itself had half-dried clods sticking to it as high as its knees. And it had found a sword. Well, perhaps the word sword is a bit generous for the rusted piece of metal it held in one hand and whose edge lay on one shoulder, but it was clear from looking at the white that the undead creature, at least, felt the sword was no less than Excalibur. It seemed to stand taller, prouder, and a sense of calm that hadn't been present in their earlier encounters filled the moor. It watched Richard approach but made no move towards him. When it was clear that the boy would come no closer, the creature simply turned away, sending its gaze back up into the heavens. It seemed to be waiting for something, and its posture made it extremely clear that it was prepared to wait as long as necessary. What exactly it was waiting for was more of a mystery. Richard wondered whether it believed that the noisy, dangerous metal beasts that ringed the sky were dragons, or whether they were angels sent to take him to his promised land. One thing seemed certain. A dead creature from the deep past, armed with a rusted sword, was unlikely to understand the Luftwaffe. The boy took another step towards the white. And then another. A third. At the fourth, the white turned its attention back to the ground and gave him a look that froze Richard in his tracks. It raised its sword not at the boy, but at the sky, and grunted. Then it pointed at the countryside, indicating everything around them, the moors, the overcast sky, and a distant copse of trees, and tried to speak. The sound that came out was completely impossible to understand, but the message was clear. What was out there belonged to the white, and all challenges would be met by the sword, rusty or not. Richard did not sleep well that night. When old Tom finally became ambulatory once again, Richard was certain the white, still standing where he'd left it, would be discovered. But the groundskeeper seemed to have little inclination to leave the house and spent his time drinking broth in the kitchen and telling the maids wilder and wilder tales of undead creatures that made Hitler's armies seem like a thing to be laughed off. Though the old man stayed away from the moors, Richard still kept him in his sights. He didn't want to find that, in a careless moment, the groundskeeper would sneak up on him like he had that very first day. That would be a true catastrophe. But Richard's presence seemed to be discomforting to everyone in the servants' hall. 
eyes shifted, and people found other things to do when he walked in. The pools seemed to grow and grow until, late one day, old Tom, well into his drink, finally spluttered. Don't you follow me around all day, lad. It's no more I thought the Germans killed your parents in the last attack. Why if I had But Richard heard no more. Now he understood the freedom he was given, understood why Hannah hadn't even chided him when he'd returned late for dinner the night before. It was no comfort to him that he now owned the house and the surrounding countryside for miles around. Blinded by tears, the boy ran off into the moor, and whether by design or by accident, he soon found himself face to face with the white, just as night was falling. Overcome by tears, he had ignored both the sound of distant sirens and the commotion caused by old Tom's sudden outburst. It was only under the supremely sobering effect of that undead gaze that he realized what was going on around him. The air raid siren, a new one that had been installed following the bombing incident, could be clearly heard, its wail only slightly distorted by the distance. And in sharp barks and cries, the shouts of the household calling his name. He debated whether to return to the open arms of his own people or to stay there, alone on the moor, surrounded by nothing that was alive. The memory of his servant's betrayal of their refusal to do what was right, made the decision for him. As night fell, he stood next to the white on its seemingly eternal vigil. He wondered what it was thinking about. He himself was wondering how long they'd known without telling him. The darkness was soon complete. If he hadn't known what the thing standing beside him actually was... He could have easily pretended that it was just a silent man. The shouts got nearer and then farther away as the household staff crisscrossed the moors in search of a wayward boy who was now their master. Richard wondered if he would have to wait to grow up before he could sack them all. He went back to gazing at the sky. Suddenly, the sky was torn apart by a shrieking roar. Something enormous flew low at almost unimaginable speed and ploughed into the moor in front of them, near enough to deafen Richard with its sound and near enough that he could feel the wind from its passage. It screeched and thumped its way along before stopping about 200 yards away from where Richard and the White were standing. It was impossible to see what it was until it caught on fire. A small blaze showed that the monster that had seemed so enormous while in the air was actually the remains of a small fighter plane. One wing was gone and the other was ablaze, but the plane was upright at the end of the furrow it had carved into the moor. Incredibly, Richard could see movement in the cockpit. He followed the white as it walked towards the wreck. When they had gone about halfway, the figure of a man dropped to the ground and crawled away from the burning fighter. Moments later, the pilot stumbled to his feet, 
The fire had grown large enough that the pilot could clearly see them, but it also allowed Richard to see the markings on the aeroplane's tail. A black cross within a white cross with a thinner black border. It was a marking that every schoolboy in Britain had been taught to recognize and taught to hate. Luftwaffe! The white turned to look at him, dead eyes glazed, showing no curiosity. He's a German. Do something! The white didn't move. He's here to invade. This is our country, and it's my land. You can't let him do that. The pilot came closer, fumbling with a pocket on a thick flight jacket. His face was covered by blood that oozed out of his leather helmet, but there was no mistaking the fear and desperation in the man's eyes. A black pistol emerged and was pointed at the white, and the man said something which seemed to consist entirely of consonants and gutturals. The sound of the man's voice, or perhaps the language itself, seemed to move the ancient warrior. The white suddenly launched itself at the aviator, still 20 yards away, in a stiff but effective run. It moaned and held the sword aloft. The pilot screamed and began to fire, emptying the magazine into a creature which had long since ceased to care about physical pain. The German's eyes went wide as he watched it approach, and wider still when the white buried two feet of rusted iron into his belly. The German stayed upright, bleeding onto the moor for a long time. Then he crumpled. Richard joined the white beside him, and they looked on the enemy's face for a silent eternity. Shouting from behind caused Richard to turn. What looked like the entire household staff was standing on a small rise just behind them, with a large oil lamp of a kind strictly forbidden by the blackout rules governing Blitz-era Britain. He could see horror in their expressions and fear. Richard could almost read the treacherous thoughts behind those looks. The German might have been the enemy, but at least he'd been human. The white... The white frightened them because it was implacable and unholy. But to Richard, it seemed that the undead frightened them because it was loyal as well. Loyal to a parcel of ground or to some ancient ideal, perhaps, but unquestionably loyal. Not like them. Richard turned back to the white who'd removed its sword from the fallen aviator and stood by his side. He looked straight into the undead eyes. Kill them all. This time, the long-dead warrior moved to obey.
For many, church can be a place of serenity and sacredness. So too can the early morning. When one is in such a place at such a time, you would expect a sense of tranquility, even if one were waiting for a funeral to begin. But in this tale, shared with us by author Vil Numenpa, the task that faces Lucy leaves her feeling anything but tranquil. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Jessica McAvoy, Jesse Cornett, Aaron Lillis, Peter Lewis, Danielle McRae, Mary Murphy, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, and Kyle Akers. So get all the prep out of the way. The service may be starting soon, but first we require a dark candle and a full confession. They say a church is a sanctuary. It's not. At least not the way you think. A church is the place where the dead gather. They seek solace and forgiveness. And this is where they come to. This is where they reach out for your essence and long for your acceptance. But you don't know it. During the daytime, they are there with you at the sermons. They are sitting next to you, taking morbid comfort from your singing trying to feel your faith. In the dead of night, they hold their sermons that no living would want to witness. Lucy didn't want to either, but she had to. Thomas was there, waiting at the altar. It was a cheap pine coffin, not varnished, not even plain down for splinters. They couldn't afford a better one, and Lucy had spent her last copper coins on it. Thomas was to be buried in the morning, but Lucy came early. It was two o'clock, the most silent hour. This was her last chance, and she had to know. It never really gets dark in the dead of summer, so the old woman had given her the candle. This was the kind of candle that creates darkness instead of light. They were strictly forbidden, and anyone in possession of such things would be burned without trial. Worth the risk. This was the kind of darkness that lured the dead and made them feel safe. In this kind of darkness, the dead would forget being dead and approach the living. They would have questions to ask and favors to beg. They would have gifts to give and wishes to grant. None of these should be answered. You will not talk to them, the old woman had said. You will not answer to their pleas no matter how desperate. You will not look them in the eye or respond to their words. And whatever you do, you will not accept anything from them, no matter how tempting. Lucy removed the lid of the coffin and looked at her fiancé. So calm and pale, and the bruise had been well concealed with chalk powder. A nasty fall it had been, and the memory made her feel a tingle of remorse for a second. It passed. She poured a circle of salt around the coffin and stepped inside. There was a white candle at the altar. She replaced it with the black one and lit it. The room grew darker immediately. The dead should come any minute now, she had been told. But they were already there. Two footsteps were approaching from the right, and her heart all but stopped. 
at first out of fear of getting caught. If someone found her here, doing what she was doing, she would be burned first thing at dawn. But these two weren't living, which replaced her fear with a different kind. It was an old couple dressed in their finest. The man was holding a watch by its chain, handing it to Lucy. They came to her. Here, please. Do we still have time? Lucy did not speak or look at them. The watch was now within her grasp. Please, is there still time? She wanted to answer but couldn't. The man's voice was all wrong. His voice didn't speak to her through her ears, but through her spine. Maybe she won't hear us. She seems so nice. Ask again. Miss, please. We need to know. Lucy didn't want to look at them, but had to. They only had dark sockets for eyes. And for that brief second when their glances met, the old couple grew immediately menacing. As Lucy looked away, she could feel their anger. Maybe she's one of them. One of the devil's bitches. Lucy wanted to tell them no, but kept looking away. The watch was still there, relentlessly within her reach. Please. Please. She knows nothing. She's here on a devil's errand. Then she heard the vicar's voice. Only not the vicar they had now. This was a voice she remembered from her childhood. Please be seated. Only then did she realize that the long-dead vicar was standing at his podium, and the room was packed. Restless, aimless, curious, pale people who were all looking at her. She did her best not to look at them. They all seemed to obey the vicar's word and dutifully sat down. Hundreds of dark sockets staring at her. It felt like their eyes could smell hers. Then the organs blasted at full volume, and Lucy felt she could die right there. Whoever was playing had long since forgotten how. What came out was discord and chaos that seemed to follow a dark theme. Then the dead joined in, singing. If purgatory was a song, surely this was it. The dead had no key, but they followed it. The song had no tune, but it took you to places. They droned in their darkest voices and cherished every note. This was the hymn no living should ever hear. When they finally stopped, the vicar started. Dearly deceased, we have gathered here in death, for time allows us not to mourn for the sake of the living, but to celebrate the deathness of time. All of this seemed to make perfect sense to the congregation. Those grim, pale faces were all nodding and taking in every word. Lucy didn't dare to move and listened patiently. The sermon led to another song. It was a barely recognizable rendition of a hymn she had sung countless times herself. The tune and the words were off, but their delivery could not have been more heartfelt. After the song, a child in the third row was clapping her hands, only to be stopped by a woman in a black veil. Lucy noticed this, and the child noticed her. She's not supposed to be here. Then all sockets were on her again. The vicar also stopped and turned his gaze at her. 
There was whispering and murmuring growing exceedingly hostile. She is not one of us. She might know. She won't tell us. We should ask her. And they all stood up and started toward her. Lucy couldn't take it anymore. Stop! Shut up, all of you! I want nothing of you. I just need to talk to my Thomas. Please leave me be and I'll be on my way. She dares. The nerve. I want a word with her. And they were all around her. They all wanted something and were offering gifts. Coins, jewels, and rings. Begging for answers and offering secrets. Spewing insults and venomous threats. Lucy tried her best to block them out and focused on her dead fiancé's face. She spoke only to him. Thomas, by all that is holy, you will now speak to me, and you will speak the truth. I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if it's wrong. But you will return to me once more, and you will answer me. Thomas's body started convulsing at this and let out a cry of agony. The eyes, sewn shut, did not open. But the mouth did. Leave me. It hurts. No. You will answer me. And only then I shall leave you be. Curse you. The child. The child Maya is carrying. Is it yours? Thomas's body tried to resist, but had no choice. Yes. Lucy grimaced and bit her lip. It began to bleed. There was a legion of dead around her, but it didn't matter. She had the chance no one ever has, to talk to a beloved one last time. But that didn't matter. All reason was now replaced with blind anger, and that was all that mattered. I thought as much. To hell with you then. Go! And the convulsing stopped. Thomas was silent once again, and would be so forever. Lucy thought about the fall again, and this time didn't feel remorse. She had asked him, implored him, questioned him and threatened him. Finally, she had pushed him. As the body laid there at the bottom of the stairs, her main regret was she would never know the truth. Now she did, and it was done. The dead around her were now but a mere nuisance, and Thomas was just dead weight. There was only one goal from here on. The bitch Maya, who was carrying her fiancé's offspring. She lifted her head and spoke to the dead. Be gone, you! To hell or heaven, the choice is yours, and see if I care. You will now leave me alone and be on your way. You have overstayed your welcome, and I will suffer you no longer. The wretched dares to defy us. Insolent bitch! We should scratch her eyes out. But she might know. And she blew out the candle. The dissolving darkness scared and confused the dead around her. Lucy broke the circle of salt and stepped through it. No one touched her. No one spoke to her. And they all stepped aside. She could feel their hate. But more than that, their fear... She walked out of the church and closed the door behind her. Later that day at the ceremony, she managed to shed a fake tear or two. Maya was also there, 
trying to hide her real ones. Maya looked as sad as Lucy wanted to feel, and that only fed her anger. Maya clearly didn't know she knew, which made things easier. Lucy would deal with her later. That baby belonged to her, and she would get it one way or the other. There were plenty of familiar dead faces there, but no one else saw them. The old man was still holding his watch, desperately offering it to anyone. The dead didn't seem to remember Lucy anymore. And so what if they had? What were they going to do? Kill her? Jane Flowers used to be a famous musician. Well, she still is in the world's hearts. But when it comes to an active career, not so much. The dead tend to struggle with that. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.T. Marie, while the fans mourn her death, Jane muses over her life. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Wafia White, Atticus Jackson, Dan Zapula, Peter Lewis, Danielle McRae, Ellie Hirschman, Ilana Charnell, Matthew Bradford, Penny Scott Andrews, Kyle Akers, Nicole Goodnight, and Mike Delgadio. So let's take a look into the life and death of an artist as we read her Letters from a Pit Stop. I brought was a radio. I don't know when I decided that was the thing I would carry, but here I am holding it up like a guiding light in a forest filled with deserted doll-like houses and strangers I refuse to make eye contact with. They call this place the Pit Stop. They are not my fans. Well, some of them used to be until they saw me here. Well, If it isn't Jane Flowers, I'm surprised you didn't bring your keyboard. I didn't realize you had such problems. Just a dumbass like the rest of us. What a shame. It shouldn't have happened. A boy, younger than me, scratching a track mark on his arm. You did this to yourself. This place is full of opinions. People are so quick to write other people off because of shitty things that people do to themselves. I should have brought sunglasses. To get away from the rude comments, I walk through the long grass to a quiet lake that has no life in it. I don't look at my reflection in the water anymore because it is not a pretty picture. It shows a person decaying like watching the skin of your face being shaved off layer by layer, revealing muscle, bone, and eventually nothing. I turn to the sky and switch my radio on. I don't care what station. I play it loud. So many different songs and voices whisking me to different eras. With my eyes closed, I wade into the water. 
And how this feels normal. I do so much better when I'm at a distance. Like when I was on stage, where people looked up to me. I was once honored for the way I think. I wanted to provide something important to the public. But a role model I am not. What does fame mean to the birds? My anger takes a backseat to their song. Rage used to go into my music. But that language is now lost on me. You're listening to Alternative 90.7. Now they are playing my jam. The one I wrote for you. When I swim, I fantasize about the water washing away the memories that I keep on reliving. I go under and take a deep breath. But when I do, I am back on dry land. Other times, I let my body float, imagining I am going places. But my feet always hit ground, and I'm flailing in a shallow pool with the same feelings I had before. That feeling is now a dull ache ingrained in my bones. Violence doesn't exist here. I know, because I accidentally made eye contact with a person in a state of rage. At first, I wasn't sure he saw me. He was staring, but seemed to be looking at something fixed by his own imagination. Maybe I reminded him of someone he hated. He lunged at me, only to fall on his ass completely confused. Upon arrival, many of us are confused. We ask each other questions, but nobody has any answers. Questions just lead to more questions. With our one and only prized possessions, some of us squat in the empty houses to think of reasons or excuses. But nobody is supposed to stay here forever. We are encouraged to move on. Some people huddle in groups of three or five. Others, like me, walk around in hopes of coming to some conclusion other than wishing to turn back time. We all write letters. The wind and the scratching of pens against paper are the tunes everyone hums along to. When we send them out, our letters bloom into leaves on trees that change from green to yellow, red to brown. When I was home, I never once thought a leaf had something to say to me. I doubt you will read this. There's a bus that stops at the end of the road. The older folks, with white hair, gray hair, or no hair at all, gather there, usually right when they arrive. They look like a gaggle of geese, waiting to depart for paradise or wherever the bus takes them. No ticket is necessary, but I'm afraid of forgetting what I used to know. I watch the bus pass. Sometimes it honks. Sometimes I wave. Sometimes the bus driver yells, Get in! But I don't. For the most part, it's the young ones who stick around, kicking up dirt. We are unfinished business going nowhere fast. At first, I tried to fit in with the younger girls. The girls, with their straight blonde hair, carefully put-in-place accessories, and well-to-do outfits. I used to envy these kinds of girls, but now we are equals. Their faces remind me of those in documentaries about unfortunate events happening to pretty young things. I've never been to prison, but I imagine it's a lot like this place, 
As in, no one is interested in sharing how they ended up here. Sitting in their circle and listening to them talk, I realized I couldn't relate. They looked at me, and now it was my turn to say something. The point of living? Pleasure, lust for life. It's exhilarating to feel, even if it is pain. To feel something is what we live for. I heard it was suicide, what you did. Lucky for them, they can maintain the mystery. For me, the announcement was made public the moment my heart stopped beating. Everyone came running to witness my demise, but no one bothered to check in when I was still breathing. There is a bar next to the bus stop. It is made of wood. I walked in there once to find the seats filled with shadows, darkness. The air was damp. May hates this place. Too many ghosts. She took a swig from a rum bottle that never ends. I noticed May the day I arrived. Warm looking, with long purple braids. She was constantly in motion. I watched her go in and out of empty houses, taking a swig of rum every time she reached a doorway. What are you doing? I asked after watching for some time. Working. What kind of work? She took another swig of the bottle. I'm a nurse. Must be a hard job, I said, looking through the window of the house she had just come out of. It is. I'm Jane Flowers. I put my hand out in hopes of a connection. Name's May. For a moment, I felt the warmth of her hand. I asked if she knew me. Are you on TV? Sometimes. I used to be. I don't watch TV. But if you want to hang around, my shift ends at three. I meet May by the water often. She is easy to talk to. Why are there so many empty houses? People built them. Thought they would stay a while. Now, people don't stay so long. Do you live in one? I frequent many. How long have you been here? I don't remember. May looks at the cheap radio next to me. What are we listening to? I still dream of the unapologetic ugliness of the city. I imagine crawling back on all fours to my filthy hometown, with its dirty streets and polluted breath. The city where I made a name for myself. The city that embraced me, when you wouldn't. Here, I am nobody special. I walk for hours in clean air I can't smell. With the thick trees and wide leaves, I can barely see the sky even though I feel like whatever is up there is actually down below. It would make sense if you were here with me. They still say my name and sing my songs. The radio I brought confirms this. Are you tuning in? Again, I doubt you will read this. The last thing I remember was looking up at that mural in Tel Aviv of Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse... Who were they in love with? That was months ago, but those are the faces I saw, right before everything went dark and I too lost out. Now, 
I experience headaches and countless dreams I go in and out of remembering. Pretty sure I am experiencing hot flashes of the past. I used to see flashes of what I hoped for. Either my mind was playing tricks with the music banging in the background, or you were. I think I must have lost touch with what was real and what was unreal between us. If only, sticks in my mind like the gum you used to chew. A rectangle of spearmint when you got off stage to talk to fans and friends. I watched you chew through awkward conversations and disappear into a crowd. You, Salvatore Zambrano, being the reason I lost my shit. We made such a good team. Then all of a sudden, you decided to bow out of our creative partnership, and I was alone. I thought we were each other's sidekicks, but then you said I no longer needed you. I still don't get why you like her so much. My boobs are, were, bigger than hers. She needs makeup to stand out. Her nose is weird. Mine is, was, perfect. I worked so hard at trying to be your favorite person, and on occasion, you made me believe that I was. You and I shared knowledge. Knowledge of what we read, what we saw, what we overheard on city streets. At times, you made me believe that we were the smartest people in the room, without having to prove it. We didn't speak about it. It was an inside joke we laughed out loud about. With a look, you told me you heard me. And then there were those words of encouragement you fed me. Tokens of affection. You had keys to my apartment. They were for in case of an emergency. But you would burst through the door, surprising me with a six-pack of beer and a wild look in your eye. We would go out to dinner together, make jokes discover new music in bars and shazam it. We worked on making music regularly, and you would visit me often. Then you stopped coming around, and I was disturbed by your sudden change in behavior. I don't want to stir up feelings. Yours or mine? What? Your feelings or my feelings? Just feelings? You shrugged, and that was it. My music was, and still is, so much better than hers. I had fans from other places. Okay, her voice is pretty, but my lyrics are, were, fire. They got me the money, the gigs, the contract, the fans. Doesn't that count for something? Yes, you sang with both of us, but you made love to her. On stage, you were on my side. Off of it. Your arm was around hers, even though all she played were empty bars and quiet cafes. I guess talent isn't as sexy as they say. She had written her initials on your favorite cotton shirt, where your heart was. The initials were faint, but they are burned into my memory to this day. I never made a comment about it, but it bothered me that you wore it on stage when you were with me. I remember the lights of your small town, where you and she both grew up. I arrived late to your gig. I wasn't invited, but I wanted to show support. Everyone congratulating you both when you played for an audience of ten. Two big fishes in a very small pond. So small I was unrecognizable. 
at that small bar in your small town, nobody knew me or asked if they should. I'm usually on my best behavior, but nobody was there to judge. I downed a pint of beer and then another one. For once, I wanted so badly to not care. I took it as an opportunity to disguise myself as a local drunk with nothing to say. I sat between two dudes, both finger-banging their phones without shame, while slamming shots of amber liquid. I watched them wrap their fingers around frosted pints of beer, trying to hold place in this small world close to home. They were both married, which made my stomach turn. I was not even 30, but the glittering bands of other people's wedding rings made me uneasy. People drink for two very different reasons. There are people who drink to let loose, and people who drink to deal. I was trying to deal with something that was out of my control. The more you ignored me, the more careless I became. For some reason, I thought I had become valuable enough that someone would come around to save me if I needed saving. For a moment, I thought it was the bartender. What are you doing in this shithole? Sing some music. You want to see stars? He pressed a little orange pill into my hand. Keep on living, baby. I swallowed it without asking what it was. I didn't order the shots afterwards. She did. That Malibu sent me to the moon, and the wild turkey you ordered slapped me back to the ground. Only when I blacked out was when you took me in your arms, carried me to my bed. Why didn't you stay? Someone, it should have been you, could have turned me on my side, and then I would have just woken up a mess with no recollection of a night I would regret. Choking on vomit? What a pathetic way to go. Now, at a pit stop, I'm stuck here wondering, whose fault was it? Yours or mine? I am tired of walking and talking in circles and sending you letters that end up on tree branches. Time to go in a different direction. This is my last letter to you. I meet May in the doorway of a house. I hold my radio out to her. But it's yours. It used to be. What are you going to do without it? I don't know. Put it inside with the others. Others? She gestures for me to walk in. Inside, the house is filled with things. Family photos left on dusty windowsills. Stuffed animals left on bookcases. Watches, rings, a lock of hair. What people bring here, they leave behind. May takes a swig of her rum bottle. I set the radio on an empty coffee table. May nods in approval. I walk backwards. May waves, and I watch her and the house burn out of sight. I turn around and walk to the end of the road. An elderly man with bad skin sits at the bus stop. He is the only one waiting. I sit down next to him. This time, when the bus comes, I am ready to board it. The man glances at me. Say, don't I know you from somewhere? Somewhere. 
Maybe. You look like a famous person. <laughs> I just don't know which one. Doesn't matter now. Oh, but it does. Fame lives on. In our final tale, we join Posey for a trip to a woodland cabin with her boyfriend, her brother, and her brother's fiancé. She's recently received devastating news and hopes that some time in the wild might help soothe her mind as best as possible. But in this tale, shared with us by author Derek Nason, being in the forest awakens Posey to some new, hopeful possibilities that may change everything. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Aaron Lillis, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, James Cleveland, and Matthew Bradford. So let's become one with nature, and remember that sometimes, when they tune into just the right frequency, a listener wakes. Within every dot of color on a map breathes a thousand, thousand lives. But you're only interested in one life. And that's so, so sad. Found on an Irving washroom stall in Norton, New Brunswick. Posey opened her eyes. The boys in the back seat were arguing about something. She slurped her drool. The car went quiet. Did we wake you up? That's okay. She pulled her mirror down to smile at Reg and Hall. Her curly black hair was flat on one side. She'd been asleep a while. She made her glasses as uncrooked as possible, using the frames to obscure the dark circles under her eyes. She's always had them, but never made peace with them. Reg smiled back. He was holding hands with her twin brother, Hal, who was immersed in his headphones. Posey turned and picked up her phone. I think this podcast has run its course? No. Sean, from the driver's seat. He hadn't spoken in hours. Not even to brag about the shortcuts and country roads he knew. Oh, I'm so into it. He turned his green eyes in pleading twitches. Posey loved this. His eyes were beautiful. And he was wearing that green button-up that brought them out. Are you sure... Sean's hair couldn't decide if it was brown or blonde, and his body couldn't decide if it was short or tall. It depended on his mood. If he was depressed, he slouched. Hal removed his headphones. What's it even about? I lost interest, like, right away. Politics. Politics. The trip was supposed to be her and Sean rekindling their flame. But then came her brother's engagement announcement, which made it about getting to know her future brother-in-law. And her brother, for that matter, who'd been living abroad for the better part of a decade. And then, Posey found out the thing in her brain was inoperable, and she wouldn't live to see 27. Nobody knew what the trip was about. 
They all spoke to each other as though on stage. Posey, it seemed, was the only one comfortable with her lines. Yeah, but like Canadian politics. New Brunswick politics. Sean picked up Posey's phone, hunting for the pause button with pathetic glances. You know how hard it is to... Their world swerved. Tires screamed. Bird! For a few long moments, the only sounds were the engine and the steadying breaths of the passengers. What happened? Crow. Posey turned. The shrinking bird was utterly unbothered. It picked at a red mound of once-living flesh on the faded yellow line. She whispered over the thudding of her heart in her teeth. Crow. In moments like this, nouns didn't make sense to her. Crow. The roads got loud, spat rocks. They slowed. Overgrown trees and the threat of deer kept Sean's eyes swiveling. Posey watched him. She imagined Sean as an old man. You'll need glasses one day. Thinking about the far future reminded her that she wouldn't be in it. She chewed at a hangnail. A tree branch chopped their windshield. Gravel crunched beneath their slowing tires. We're home. Sean threw his arm over Posey's headrest. Reg and Hall had furrowed brows. Looks like someone else is too. Reg pointed. Smoke billowed from the log cabin chimney. Sean frowned. Stay here. Posey looked in her mirror to let Reg and Hall know that Sean was playing tough, and they all had to get out and back him up. Sean marched up to the front door, which opened before he reached it. A young man met him on the threshold. Oh. Hello. Hello. The stranger looked over Sean's shoulder to everyone behind him. Hello. Hello. Hi. He lived in the woods. That was plain. His red flannel was charred black at the bottom. He wore a green ball cap with loose red stitches that might have once held a patch in place. His blue jeans were decorated with black handprints, and his black beard was yellowed by his smile. His eyes were brown and kind. He was younger than all of them, but there was an air of deference they instantly had to him, which Sean hated. He was an intruder. You must be the owner. Yeah. Who are you? Tom. The five stood still, encircled by the slow dance of pines in the wind. I'll get my stuff and get out of your way. Five minutes? Sean nodded. No hurry. Tom smiled at Posey. Sean glared. While Tom packed up, Sean gave a tour of the outside. Uh, there used to be a swing here. He glanced toward the cabin. Better not touch the VCR. Nobody wants your VCR or your tapes. Hal and Reg hid their smiles. A squirrel ululated. They looked up. Posey saw sunlight winking off the lake just beyond the trees. Can we go swimming? Sean slouched. Can we wait a bit? She smiled and nodded. Posey liked that Sean didn't say yes to everything. That always made her feel like her life was already over. Tom oozed his way out. Before disappearing behind a tall weed, he looked over his shoulder, right at Posey, right into her eyes. The tour continued for another ten minutes. Sean was relieved to find no trace of the hermit, not even a foul smell as he anticipated. There was a good smell, actually. 
a lived-in smell of wood smoke, maple syrup, and weed. None of the mustiness that accompanies opening the cabin for the season. Sean eyed the shelves. Should we play cards? Watch a movie? I'll hook up the solar. Shit, he better not have stolen any panels. He hadn't. The boy's snores filled her ears. Posey shut her eyes, then slowly relaxed her eyelids. They sprung back open. Shit. The party still rang in her ears. Laughter, music changing every minute amidst arguing. They'd drunk half the booze, ate all the chips, lost half the properties in the Monopoly set. It didn't make sense that she couldn't sleep. With her medication, staying awake was supposed to be the challenge. She'd already looked at all the marks on the ceiling and decided what they looked like in the darkness. There was nothing left to do. Except sleep. Don't miss the bus. Posey let her head loll to the side. Nobody was sleeping on the cots. They decided that would be inauthentic out here in the wilderness. So they sprawled out on sleeping bags on the cruel floor. Sean. Mm. Fuck you. Love you too. Sean farted, then returned to snoring. Posey's sleeping bag vibrated with stifled laughter. When it was over, she breathed long and deep. Her lungs needed real air, with real oxygen, not these hand-me-down Dorito farts. Once she was out, she glanced back inside through the large picture window, worried the creaking front door might have woken everyone. She stopped. The car was covered with a lot more foliage than she remembered. She saw the glint of her phone holder and not much else. The rest was shrouded. Hmm. Her voice sounded beautiful to herself. She was still stoned. The onset of a booze headache reminded her she was still alive. She couldn't see her hand in front of her face. She followed the sound of lapping water until the moonlight showed her the lake. She sat. Just sitting in front of a lake and breathing has always been something to do. It's tragic, she thought, that some people would die without ever knowing that. She let the tiny waves tickle her toes. The cold turned her scalp to moss. It invited her to become it. Sean, who was by no means new-agey, extolled the virtues of cabin life on the way up. It detoxifies you, he'd said. She was starting to get it. In the first hour, there was unease in everybody. Their bodies were expecting something. The hum of power lines, the buzzing of phones. It was uncomfortable. So they drank. Now the unease was gone. Replaced with sweet, cold, nothing. It was everything. And the boys were sleeping through it. She got up and walked in, until she felt the nothing up to her knees. Then she went further, and further. Each drop of water was pathetically small, but together, they made a world that was everywhere. She decided to swim out. She'd pull, and pull, and pull, then surface, and see how far away she'd made herself. She sprung forward, only to feel herself tethered. Something held both her ankles. She pulled harder, expecting roots to snap away, but merely bobbed there. She grunted. Bubbles assaulted her. She clawed at the wet ropiness around her feet. Her heart pounded in her ears. She tried pushing herself against the lake floor to get air. She felt cold air on her head, but her nose and mouth remained submerged. 
She cried uselessly into the lake. Two hands pulled her armpits. Her lungs opened. You're okay. Everything was loud. You're okay, you're okay. She heaved. You're okay. He clapped water out of her. Uh, oh, shit. Her new life's first word. You're okay. The moonlight made shadows of Tom's eye sockets. You. Tom. Tom. The oxygen lightened Posey's blood. Her skin erected mountains of goose flesh. Tom averted his eyes. She looked down. The water, her white shirt, the moonlight made her as good as naked. Oh. She covered herself with her palms in a way that made her imagine the word scandalous. Tom tossed his flannel around her. Oh. It was warm, fuzzy, generous. She felt bad for wincing as it went on. Might be a little stinky. He smiled. You saved me. She smiled back. That lake is dangerous. Men made it. Oh. She watched Tom stare off at something she couldn't see. How long have you lived like this? Since 13. How old are you now? 17, I think. He looked at least 30. I look older. Not just because I'm out here. I'm sick. Cancer. In my guts. I should be dead by now. The space between Posey and Tom became quiet. I'm sick too. She tapped the area of her head where her cancer lived. I could tell. You're different. Posey smiled. Usually when someone said, you're different, she'd defer to her, I have a boyfriend script, and bring the conversation to a close. She followed Tom to a clearing that, to her relief, was a ways from the cabin. She couldn't go back there yet. She was in no state for sleep. This is where I live most of the time. I was just in the cabin because it rained last night. There was a fire pit in the middle of the clearing, as far away from all the trees as possible. The tour of his space circumnavigated it. Here's the bedroom. A rollout with a messy sleeping bag atop. Posey was amused by the alarm clock next to it. Tom pointed straight up. The pantry. About 20 feet in the air hung an old Club Monaco sweater, the logo bellying toward them. There's food in there? Mostly hot dogs, crackers. She followed his pointing finger to the tree root it was tied to. The rest of the place is hard to explain. They were halfway around the circle. There was a space before a tree trunk where the ground was matted. She could tell he spent a lot of time here. Reading, maybe? There was something wrong with the tree. It bled a blackened sap. What kind of tree is this? Pine. Tom stopped, dipped a finger into the sap, shoved it into his mouth. Mmm. He smiled. Try some? I didn't know it was edible. It isn't, usually. Posey felt air under her foot. She grabbed the closest branch. Careful. What's this? Posey got down on her hands and knees. The pit was as wide as she was tall. Roots as thick as her arm vined into it. It looked like all the trees in the forest were falling over each other to get into this hole. It's a hole in the ground. Posey got as close as she could without falling in. She winced at the smell. Animal fell in at some point. Why don't you cover it up? Trees need it open. He motioned toward all the roots as though that were a sufficient explanation. 
She followed him back to the bedroll where he promptly sat, lit a previously chipped joint, and fiddled with his clock radio. An eerie whisper emanated from it. What is this? NPR from Maine. For some reason this lady talks real low. But I like her music. Posey took the joint. It tasted like damp, burnt paper. Tom smiled when she coughed. She smiled back. She couldn't believe she'd gone from dying to having fun in such a short space. So, how long have you been sick? Posey went quiet. She's known about her tumor for 12 weeks. But how long had it actually been there? When was it born? She could have been sick all that time. Three months. That's how long she's had headaches. You afraid to die? No one ever asked her this. Yes. I'm really, really scared, and I'm really sad. Tom nodded. It's like there's this thing you need to think about because it's coming. But the fucked up thing is nothing's required of you. You just die. So there really isn't anything to think about. Posey wiped away a tear with the sleeve of the flannel. She wondered how many varieties of DNA were on it. The joint was low enough she could feel the heat of the cherry on her thumb. Tiny hairs on the flannel caught the moonlight, dangling in a wind too faint to feel on her skin. This wind was a secret. I can't feel the wind. Tom smiled, nodded. The folds in his eyelids told her the weed was working on him, but she somehow knew she was much higher than he. Maybe too high, she wondered. How long ago was that whole drowning thing? She wasn't cold anymore. Tom nodded again. Stood. I still can't feel the wind, Tom. You can't talk, Posey. And you can't move. What are you talking about? She tried to get up, but teetered sideways. Tom leapt to catch her. He righted her, leaning her torso against a tree. You won't be able to move for a little while. Not that long. A couple minutes. But it'll feel like a real long time. Tom, shut up. <laughs> talking right now, dipshit. Tom saved her life. They were friends now. It was okay to call him a dipshit. Right? I can call you a dipshit, right? Don't talk, or your throat'll hurt when you come out of it. Posey thought maybe this wasn't a joke. The sound of her voice was catching up to her ears, and the words weren't making sense. I don't want you to die. His face hadn't a trace of dishonesty. And I'll make sure you don't. If you let me. His breaths were waves of an ocean. If you want me to tell you how, nod. You should be able to nod or blink. Posey couldn't tell if she was nodding, so she blinked furiously. Tom smiled. You're doing both. Posey tried to swallow and nearly choked. Her danger was real, she knew that. But the fear she was supposed to be feeling was somewhere else. A long way off. These trees are alive. They're my parents. Not the human ones that ignored me a bunch of years. These are the ones that were there before humans. Before dinosaurs. Before everything that walked around. They need to live. And they need to think. When bees come, when squirrels come, they help spread information around. There's thoughts and pollen and all that stuff. They need to think because it's their planet. Our lives are just a little dream in theirs. Tom checked over his shoulder toward the cabin, assumed a hushed tone, and continued. Your friends all have to die. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. 
And I can tell that Sean guy is your boyfriend. He's gotta die too. I'm so sorry. If it sounds like I practice saying all this, it's cause I have. Every day I practice this, in case I find the right person. And Posey, that's you. He wiped some spit from his lips. Our real parents are upset with us. They can't think as fast anymore. We're cutting them down. We're choking them. And worst of all, we're starving them. Have you ever been starved, Posey? I have. My aunt used to keep me in a closet for the whole weekend while she partied. I got so hungry I couldn't think. Tom got up, walked to the trunk with the black sap, walked back, and rubbed along Posey's gums. She felt a comforting warmth spread from her mouth to her fingertips. She was trying to tell him she was sorry for what his family did to him. You need to not talk. Just keep listening for another minute. Then I'll give you a bit of time to think about everything. But Posey... And I'm so sorry about this, but... We don't have a lot of time. She wasn't trying to speak. She was ready to listen. But there was a moth on her lips she was trying to shoo away. He carefully grazed her lip saving her from the thing that wanted to live in her mouth. Our parents need iron, and a bunch of other stuff in our bodies. We used to bury each other when we died, right in the ground, no coffin or anything. But now, for like the past hundred years or whatever, we take our blood out and put poison inside, just so our relatives can catch flights and see our faces one last time. It's stupid. It's cruel. It's starvation. We need to help them. And we've been doing it. Think about it. Where do witches come from? Not the old-timey ones. I mean, real witches. People always disappear around places with woods. That's us. That's me. That's you, Posey. If you want. People who live for them. He motioned toward the pines. Everywhere. I'm so sorry, Posey. I'm so, so sorry, but if you don't kill them and put them into that stomach over there... He pointed to the big hole in the ground. I'll do it. And I'm not their friend. So that'd be cruel, right? And if I don't do it, they will. Have you ever seen trees move? Posey remembered thinking the pines were closing in on the car. Yes. Tom rubbed more sap on her gums. Posey's eyelids rolled. You really have a high tolerance for this stuff. Higher than mine when I was woken. Means you're a natural. Posey tried to smile. She felt thick drool seep down her chin. My only advice? Get him outside. If anything goes wrong, I'll step in and help. But do it one by one. It's more personal. And that's nice. That way they won't die alone. Nobody deserves that. He thrust a carpet cutter into her palm. She felt her fingers close around it. He pointed to his ear, then dragged the finger down his neck. Posey watched close. His fingertip left a glowing, marigold-colored line in its wake. Whoa. This is the carotid artery. Cut across here a few times, okay? Okay. She smiled. She was ready. I'll stand back here and watch. Do you want me to help if you look like you need it? Posey thought. She was worried she was taking too long to think and that he'd disappear, and this whole thing would turn out to be a dream, and she would die in this dream just like everyone else, 
and be put in a box and get poison put in her veins. Okay. He nodded. I'll be behind the sap tree. Okay. Thank you, person. She kept forgetting the man's name, but that was okay, because he was nice and would understand. She stood, holding her arms ahead of her to ensure she could stand alone. She gave Person a thumbs up as he receded into the darkness. She walked in the opposite direction, which she remembered was where the cabin was. She decided to blink because her eyes were dry, but also worried that that would reset her brain and she'd forget everything she just learned. So she waited as long as possible, taking a few more steps as the invisible wind turned her corneas to deserts. She blinked, and the cabin's big window was right in front of her. She grinned. She really was meant for this. After all this time, two degrees, dozens of jobs, she'd finally found where she belonged. She was worried she would burst out laughing and ruin everything. She was very high. She found pretending she was a spy helped. Everyone performs better when pretending they're someone else. It relieves the pressure of being oneself, of making a failure of one's only life. She tapped the window with her fingertip. There was no light inside and a bright moon outside. She stared into her reflection, willing it to not turn into the goofy grin it wanted to. She was maintaining, maintaining. Someone appeared, a person she remembered loving. Sean. He rubbed his eyes. She smiled, not because she was a bad spy, but because she was a good spy. Sometimes people smile in real life. She motioned him outside. He looked at his wrist, then held up four fingers, whatever that meant. She motioned him outside again. He made an exhausted face, then nodded. She moved toward the door, trying not to scream in victory. Sean. He held a finger to his lips, then tripped over a flip-flop that wasn't quite on his foot. God, fuck. She steadied him with her arm, which seemed to confuse him. She frowned. She was breaking character. She donned the carpet cutter in her right hand. Where the fuck did you find that? Um... She was trying to remember a person's name. Don't pick up stuff, you'll get tetanus. Sean walked a few steps toward Tom's camp, dropped his boxers, and began urinating. His eyes must have been closed, otherwise he'd see the sap tree and the stomach. He'd see everything. Posey breathed. The moon showed her Sean's carotid artery. It pulsed gold. For her. Her tree parents must have put something in the air to make it glow like that. For her. They wanted to help her because they loved her. I love you too. Huh? I didn't say any. Sean choked on his last words, grabbing at his neck. Posey wrapped his beautiful hair in her knuckles, pulled his head aside and made another cut. Then another. Then another. She was about to cut again when his arm dropped and slid limp down her waist. She kissed his still warm lips, then walked toward the sap tree. A young man emerged before she reached it. Tom! She remembered his name. He lifted his finger to his lips. She'd apparently just yelled that. He smiled to show that he wasn't mad. You did great. I'll take care of this. He began dragging her boyfriend away. Thanks. Who are you talking to? Hal saw the carpet cutter in her hand, dripping with blood. Oh my god, Posey. He rushed toward her. Are you okay? What the fuck happened? Where's Sean? 
A voice was inside her, telling her no, lying to her, telling her this is the dream, that she was awake before and that Tom was a liar. She screamed to that voice. No! No! No, 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 no! Before swinging the blade, she saw her brother's eyes seeing a stranger. The thick, curved blade was caught by his orbital bone. Huh? Hal released all his breath in one concise push. He took a contemplative step forward, then fell. Reg exploded out the front door wearing shoes and nothing else. The car lights flickered. Posey knew that meant he had the keys. Tom dropped Sean's legs, stood transfixed. No. She tried prying the blade from Hal's skull. The engine started. The headlamps came on. Posey heard a scream from inside the car. The lights must have shown Reg what she did to his fiance. Tires squealed, but the car didn't budge. It squirmed side to side. Reg was stuck somehow. Posey gave up on the carpet cutter and walked toward the car. Reg's face came into view. He tried to cover his nakedness. She placed her hands on the driver's window, leaving red prints. I'm awake! Posey! The word didn't make sense. In moments like this, nouns are nothing. Just some sounds that people made up. He was sobbing. It was sad. So, so sad. Posey looked at his body, the thing carrying his dream, lying to him over and over again. She felt so terrible for him. He'd made her brother happy, made his dream a good dream. Right now it was a nightmare. The sooner she could end it, the better. It's okay. Tom was beside her. Look. He pointed behind the car. The trees had completely boxed it in. He pressed his hands just below the back door handle. We can do this. He smiled. She joined him, smiled back. Then pushed and pushed and pushed, all the while belonging to something. She opened her lungs and ignited a deep, cleansing roar. Posey opened her eyes. Her stomach hurt. It was both hunger and nausea, somehow. Her hands were sticky and brown. Her skin itched. Tom, her new brother, told her this was a normal part of sleeping outside and she'd get used to it faster than she thought. She breathed in the poisonous oxygen and breathed out life-giving air for her parents. Then it came. Her first flashback. The dream she'd woken up from played the deaths of her loved ones on repeat. Sean's eyes. Hal's eyes. Her legs went soft. Tears blinded her. Phlegm strangled her. She tried screaming. She screamed and screamed and screamed. Tom knelt in front of her and took both her hands. I want... I want... I want... The noun came to her. I want the sap! Tom sighed. He shook his head. I want the sap! I want the sap! I'm sorry, sister. I'm so, so sorry, but you're awake now. You need to feel this. She screamed and screamed and screamed. The trees were still. Posey collapsed onto a bed of needles and acorns, shaking, shaking. Posey opened her eyes. The sun was high. A bird just above her was very happy about something. The yard was a mess. There were bottles, 
camping bags, and an overturned Toyota Yaris. Reg was still inside. There wasn't enough room in the stomach for him yet. Now that there were two witches in these woods, though, they could probably afford to have two stomachs. It would make more sense to keep hers further away, maybe on the other side of the lake, closer to Highway 10. The car was going to be a bitch to get rid of, but that's okay. Work is only bad in dreams. She was awake now. She had a reason better than money to do it. Reg's face was green in some places, yellow in others, Posey noticed. They'd taped a hose to an opening in the window and connected the other end to the tailpipe. He agreed to die this way. They let him play his favorite song from his phone. He didn't mind dying so much. He just didn't want to scream and be scared anymore. He didn't want to be in the nightmare. Posey dunked her hand in the black sap. It was extra thick with gratitude. She filled her mouth. The secret wind came back. She closed her eyes and listened. Then her eyes shot open. The headache she'd had for months was already gone. Everybody deserves to be awake. But the truth is, not all of us can handle it. It takes a lot living for our real parents. But we also don't deserve to be in a nightmare. So when I come for you, don't scream. Please, just talk. Let me know how you want it to happen. I will listen, I swear. I'm such a good listener now. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski. Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor in chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.